Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian Nduyeb and like personification of the void David Davis at the Brexit negotiations, I haven't got a fucking clue what I'm doing this week either. But hey, let's give it a go. I mean, what harm can it cause? And let's be honest, you know, I'm responsible for this podcast, so if anyone should have to wing their way through territory they're completely unclear about, it's the person who was so sure about starting it in the first place. Metaphor. It's a slightly different show this week. Um, If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I usually start with about 10 minutes of gags from the past week's politics. But to be honest, that doesn't feel quite right in the aftermath of the Grenfell tragedy from last week. Um, It's been an event that really shook me a bit, not just as a Londoner and a human being, because I am one of those. No, don't be surprised. Um, But also as someone who's done benefits for the Fire Brigade Union before, uh, as they've warned of the danger of cuts to their service, um, as someone who's worked with and met people in austerity conditions, and who's witnessed the degradation of social housing in the capital that I've lived in since I was a kid. There's something so truly saddening about that event and a a preventable situation, and it shouldn't, shouldn't have happened. There's still no final body count as I record this. It's unlikely we're going to get a true idea of exactly who should be held directly responsible as there's so many factors that led to this. And there are so many people grieving. Uh, the Grenfell Tower fire has caused more deaths than any of the past few years of terrorist attacks in the UK combined. But it happened due to neglect from our own successive governments who have repeatedly promised to protect British people and failed. And they're continuing to fail when it comes to the welfare of the victims of the Grenfell Tower fire. I've felt shitty and useless and helpless about it all week long. Um, I haven't been able to get down there. I've managed to donate a bit, but I was part of a meeting yesterday about what people with mostly unhelpful skills like me, that's why I have comedy skills, not really that useful in a situation like this. Um, But I was part of a group of uh, like-minded kind of artists and things, and we're talking about what we can do about it, and hopefully something will come from that soon. But until then, I thought I'd spend a lot of this week's show looking at what we know about the fire and why the current state of social housing regeneration, arm's length management companies and emergency services cuts have all added to, if not caused, this awful event. Uh, So it is going to be a little lighter on gags than normal. Speaking of awful events, I woke up this morning to hear of the news that the mosque in Finsbury Park had been attacked by a white nationalist in a van. I mean, in a white van, uh, of all the kind of vehicles that a white nationalist might have. Uh, That seems the least surprising. Um, Finsbury Park is my area and it has been for my whole life. That mosque is in part of Finsbury Park opposite a Pentecostal Christian church near a Jewish bagel shop uh, with mostly West Indian staff, uh, an Irish pub, a betting shop, an Eritrean restaurant, a barber shop that used to double up as a place to buy weed. I know nothing about that, I've just heard tales, obviously, and the Arsenal Stadium. That area couldn't be more diverse and welcoming if it tried. Really, attacking there, as far as I'm concerned, is properly attacking British values. I mean, can we not get a break, people? Has hot weather taken us to boiling point? Personally, I'm hoping laughter will come from the next few weeks of watching David, I constantly have the theme tune from Bullseye playing in my head, Davis, conduct Brexit negotiations with all the expertise of someone who once had a go on a child's scooter heading confidently into a driving test. 
Sure, there have been some funny things over the past week, and I will mention these uh, before we go into a slightly more serious show. Uh, for a start, Tim Farron has resigned because he put faith before politics, although with a party like the Lib Dems, a blind belief in reason for existence is entirely necessary. Then, of course, there's the fact that the Queen's speech has been um, cancelled for 2018, although hopefully with this much notice, her mad should be able to get another booking in the diary so she doesn't lose out on the work. Then there's news that acid-damaged boggling Nigel Farage has backed David Davis as Prime Minister as he believes that had mean Britain would be genuinely committed to Brexit. Have you not met Double D before, Nige? If he was Prime Minister, we'd not be committed to anything for more than 10 minutes before he then said he'd never said that and blamed someone else for it entirely. Jeremy Corbyn is going to open for Run the Jewels on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury this weekend. Meanwhile, Theresa May is likely to be hiding somewhere in the Glastonbury rabbit hole, mainly supporting herself. Oh, and apparently the government have announced that austerity is now over, which is great, as while the pound plummets and the UK economy slows down to a standstill, it shows that austerity had nothing to do with any of that sort of shit or saving money whatsoever, and it was basically just a fucking awful ideology all along. Knowing this government, though, they'll probably just rename austerity something else, and in a year's time, we'll go, hey, hang on, isn't this austerity, but with a fake moustache and glasses on? And the government will say, oh, uh, why don't you meet our new friend, Mosterity? Now dig into your own pockets and buy him a drink with your own money. But that's the funny shit. Today's show, however, is mostly on Grenfell Tower and the horrific fire there. Uh, I was going to have an interview for you from the Fire Brigade Union this week, but understandably, they have a lot on their hands at the moment and I had to cancel. Uh, I totally understand that. Uh, hopefully, I'll have them on in the next few weeks instead. Um, instead, the interview this week is a lighter and not Grenfell Tower related chat. Uh, it's a pretty fun chat about election number crunching with filmmakers, the Blaine Brothers, who've done some very, very geeky work indeed. So hopefully, you'll enjoy that. Uh, oh, and also, there's going to be a look at former Lib Dem leader Tim Farron's best bits as well. Um, also, the return of the pod question of the week. Hooray, it's back. Uh, very quick admin thank you to Anthony and Ethan who both donated to the Patreon this week. And lastly, due to the heat wave, uh, today's show is recorded while I'm only in my pants. I just wanted you to have that imagery. You're welcome. I mean, really, I'm not saying it's warm in my flat right now, but Dante just popped by to take notes. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on with today's slightly more serious show. On Wednesday, just after midnight, a fire at Grenfell Tower, a 24-storey tower block in North Kensington, was reported. I've seen Grenfell many times when driving over the Westway into or out of London or from the windows of Piccadilly Line trains when it goes over ground past Barons Court. It's a fairly obvious massive tower block that kind of stands out because there's not many other buildings of its height in the immediate vicinity. The blaze covered every floor from the second floor upwards and we still don't know entirely what started it, although rumours suggest it could have been a gas explosion, a faulty fridge or faulty building wiring or something along those lines. Uh, what we do know is that more than 200 firefighters and 40 fire engines tackled the blaze and it took over 24 hours to control because it was that severe. Final numbers of deaths are yet to be announced. Several names of those who have died have been released and 79 are now pretty much presumed dead. But some reports on the ground say that it's going to be many, many more than that when we get to the final numbers. And it could take weeks until we get there. 74 people were admitted to hospital and 18 are still there at the time of recording. Kensington and Chelsea Council seem to have done little to help and instead local people, volunteers and neighbouring Ealing Council have done the bulk of aiding residents uh, with more than £1 million raised so far through donation sites and so, so many donations of food and clothing have been given to the people. It's been requested that, that everyone stops bringing stuff. They've got too much, which is heartwarming. Jeremy Corbyn visited and spoke to residents and victims. Uh, Theresa May visited and spoke to no one, then was told to go back and do it again like she means it this time. And the Queen visited, which was a nice gesture, but she didn't offer to put anyone up in any of her spare rooms, so it feels a little bit hollow. A big protest at Kensington Town Hall on Friday was referred to by some papers as a protest, because it was, and by others as a riot, because they don't know what it's like to have human feelings. But the lead-up to the Grenfell Tower fire dates back much, much further than last week. Grenfell Tower is managed by Kensington and Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation, which means that while the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea still own the social housing in their area, the Tenant Management Organisation, or TMO, is a separate company that has a management agreement with them. 
In 2002, under Tony Blair's Labour government, the Common Hold and Leasehold Reform Act allowed leaseholders to give management of their property to another provider. And in this case, it was the Kensington and Chelsea TMO. Now, the TMO are not only a tenant management organisation, but they're also an ALMO, which isn't a knockoff Sesame Street character, but an arm's length management organisation, which actually sounds a lot like it just makes sure people's sleeves aren't too short. But what Almo really is, is a not-for-profit company that covers housing services for local authorities. Kensington and Chelsea TMO is led by a board with four members elected by tenants, four councillor-appointed ones and three independents. Their job overall is to make sure the properties they're in charge of fit with the decent home standard, which was also brought in by Blair's government in 2000 and updated in 2006, and requires public housing to reach certain minimum standards of living and health and safety. So it all seems pretty kosher so far, right? And kind of makes sense. And in fact, up until 2010, tons and tons of improvements were made to make social housing homes safe, warm and watertight using the decent home standard. After 2010, however, with Almos being not for profit, that mostly meant they had to make cuts in order to work with the money issued to them from the councils. In 2009, a ton of money that was meant to be for Almos was instead used for house building, so funding dropped even more. And by 2010, the Department of Communities and Local Government reported that a quarter of London council homes fell below the decent home standards. And since 2010, it's all gotten worse for Britain's social housing. A 2011 study by Chief Fire Officers Association and Chartered Institute of Housing said that only 27% of housing managers in the social housing sector felt confident that their buildings were fit for purpose. In 2013, the All-Parliamentary Group on Fire Safety and Rescue advised installing sprinkler systems in all 4,000 tower blocks in the UK, and it wasn't acted on. The Secretary of the All-Parliamentary Group, Ronnie King, made several requests to meet then-Housing Minister Gavin Barwell, you know, the one who wrote a book on how to win in key marginal areas and then lost his seat over a week ago. Yeah, you know him? You know the one with the most punchable face on earth. Him. But Barwell kept turning Ronnie King down, with replies just saying that they were looking into the idea of installing sprinklers. Because Barwell is such a moron that he needs to conduct extensive research into whether water would actually help deal with fire. It's funny how the government are quite keen to pay billions and billions on Trident in order to protect people, but not any money on sprinklers. I kind of wonder if their remit is just to stop other people killing their poorer citizens, as that's their job and they like it, so how dare you intervene? In the case of Grenfell in particular, the Grenfell Action Group have been trying to inform anyone that fire safety in the building isn't adequate since 2013, but to absolutely no avail, no one has paid any attention, not the council, not the government. Various blogs on the Grenfell Action Group website point to instances of emergency vehicle access being blocked uh, and a lack of fire safety instructions anywhere apart from signs telling residents to stay in their rooms if a fire occurs, information we now know to be wrong. They even mention how they believe that the council and the TMO are reactive rather than proactive and as heartbreaking as it is, it says in these blogs how sadly it's probably going to take something awful to happen before they change anything. This is, of course, all despite Kensington and Chelsea Council stockpiling £274 million of reserves over the last few years due to underspending that they've then been transferring into capital reserves. Conservative Council leader Nick Paget-Brown said that they couldn't put that money back into the services as it was just a one-off surplus. You know, one of those one-offs that's happened every single year since 2014. You can't help but feel it would just be less expensive to have used that money to buy some fucking sprinklers in the first place. Several boroughs in London have been undergoing gentrification in recent years. Um, You might have noticed that if you live in London, suddenly more places sell almond milk than ever before. How do you milk an almond? Where are their teats? Um, But in recent years with this gentrification, so many places where families have lived have now been demolished and turned into luxury, unaffordable apartments that no one can really afford unless they're a multi-millionaire. There are many, many stories of families in London in social housing being relocated for these developments to happen, but the relocation is often far outside of London, away from their family, their friends, their work and their schools. A court judgment in 2015 said out-of-area relocations were not unlawful, but that councils had a legal duty to ensure that the new location is suitable for the family. By 2016, a third of London boroughs hadn't complied with that ruling. With housing benefit freezes, benefit caps and rent rises, councils have been competing for smaller and smaller stock of affordable social housing and then having to relocate tenants to other places outside of their borough once they run out. So, mostly, people just get sent off to somewhere where they've got absolutely no support and no familiarity with. 364 families were moved out of London in 2014-2015 and the actual figure may be a lot more, but only 15 London boroughs released information on it under Freedom of Information Act when the Green Party requested it. 
The residents of Grenfell were worried that this was going to happen to them, that the flats would eventually be demolished and that they would then have to be relocated. And sadly, there now have been reports since the fire that some are being told that they're going to get moved as far away as Preston and they're going to be declared intentionally homeless if they refuse. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn called for Theresa May to reclaim private properties that weren't in use so they could be used as shelter for Grenfell residents. And that's not a crazy idea at all, as that's actually standard practice in Belgium. When a property has been vacant for more than 12 months, Belgian government reclaim it. Kensington has many properties that are just being used for value rather than accommodation, and in April figures were that there were 1,399 empty homes in the area worth a total value of £664 million. Relocating families to those homes would mean that after losing family members and friends, they wouldn't have to lose their familiar home area too, or their jobs or schools or relatives nearby. Theresa May has of course said that this won't be happening because as an empty shell herself, she just prefers husks that look like they've got some sort of humanity inside but really, really don't. The cladding that was recently fitted to the front of Grenfell Tower may have had a big part to play as well. Added as part of a superficial refurbishment to make the flats appear nicer from the outside for the nearby conservation areas and newly built luxury flats. And they were also meant to provide insulation, but investigations have revealed that cheaper cladding was chosen rather than the slightly more expensive flame retardant cladding. Instead, it's thought that this cheaper cladding had gaps in it that caused a chimney-like effect, allowing the fire to rise. There are no regulations around that in the UK, even though the Fire Protection Agency has been pushing for it for ages, as this cladding has been used on several other tower blocks, but also on schools as well. The contractors, Ryden, who did the work, very suspiciously deleted a webpage that stated exactly what contract work they did to the building, and they did that at 4am in the morning of the fire, which is very, very dodgy indeed. It's hugely sad that they're happy for everyone to get burned except them. It's also worth pointing out that this incident happened before, in 2009. Lacanel House was a tower block in Camberwell where a fire killed six people and caused 20 to be injured due to a lack of fire safety advice, and the building being repeatedly identified by the fire brigade as a risk of enabling a fire to spread if one should occur. But instead of learning from that, tower block safety checks have fallen by 25% since 2011. But then I suppose if we had a government that learned from mistakes, Theresa May would have resigned by now. So, you can already see that the fire is a product of neglect, gentrification and austerity, which is now over, so hey, chill guys. And now it's happened, it won't happen again, right? I mean, you know, for all those people in the 3,999 other tower blocks in the UK, that they're not going to be in danger, right? I mean, it won't, will it? I mean, then you have to remember this is a Conservative government who last year voted against private landlords having to make their homes fit for human habitation. Why else would anyone want to rent a home? Oh, this place looks terrible for me, but it's going to be great for my pet flies. Apparently, the Conservatives thought voting for it would bring unnecessary regulation to landlords. And anyway, local councils have powers to deal with poor quality housing. Yeah, nice one, guys. Try telling people in Kensington to trust that delegation of power. More on Boris Johnson and his shitty fire brigade cuts and what happens now with Grenfell after some of this. Numbers are great, aren't they? I mean, I like 87 because on its side, it looks a bit like a bird. You're welcome. If you put a five on the top, so it's 587, it's like a bird with an Elvis quiff. Sometimes, though, there is little better you can do with numbers than crunch them. Mm-mm, crunch your numbers. I, personally, am a very amateur number cruncher myself. I currently only bench crunch around the double digits level, mostly for fun. But for this week's interview guests, if number crunching was a world event, they'd have all the stats about who did how well and by how much. The snap election was a flurry of uncrunched numbers, and if you have a tendency towards mathematical anxiety and avoided all of them, like me, then I can see your decimal point. This week's guests, however, have made it all make sense. Chris and Ben Blaine are actually filmmakers, with their most recent film Nina Forever now on Amazon Video, iTunes and Vimeo. But when they aren't shooting quality films, they like to work out what on earth all the election numbers mean in the context of now and history, and how on earth to make sense of it all. So I thought it'd be useful to have a little chat so they could explain to me and you exactly how those 2017 election numbers crunch. Here's Ben and Chris. Hello, uh, Ben and Chris. Thank you very much for talking to me. Um, so you've done some amazing number crunching that I wanted you to explain uh, to the partly political uh, broadcast listeners. Um, and I thought I'd start by just saying, Theresa May, as we know, got 43% of the vote share and a vote gain, but lost seats. Jeremy Corbyn gained a ton of votes, but then still lost. How does this all work? So essentially it works because um, Ger- uh, Theresa May 
did gain quite a lot of votes as well. Like you talk about Jeremy Corbyn having, so he had 3.5 million extra voters on top of what uh, Ed Miliband managed in 2015, uh, which is almost as high as Clement Attlee, who uh, is the biggest gainer of votes ever uh, since the Second World War, uh, when he put on 3.9 million votes. Um, and you've got to remember that in the Second World, you've had the Second World War between votes. So there's been 10 years between the vote in 1945 and a vote in 1935. And not just any old 10 years, 10 years including the Second World War, which was quite a significant event. Yeah, so <laughs> been getting 3.5 million votes seems massive. Um, but the thing is, is that Theresa May herself gets 2.29 million extra votes, and that in itself is normally enough for a stonking majority. Uh, but instead, because Jeremy Corbyn's got more, they've ended up where they've ended up. Both feeling weirdly like losers and oddly like winners. Yeah. <laughs> right, so is that because votes have gone from other parties and gone to them instead? So in the main, yes. In the uh, Some of the other parties have definitely lost a lot of votes. So um, UKIP lost 3.2 million, um, or nearly 3.3, 3, uh, which is uh, the third worst loss in votes from one election to the next, uh, below even Michael Foote, which is actually another thing to talk about with Jeremy Corbyn, is that the expectation beforehand that was being set for him was that he would have a Michael Foote election where he lost 3 million votes. Uh, and instead, he's gained three and a half. So it's almost like, in terms of uh, emotionally, everybody feels a bit like Labour have gained six and a half million votes in one go, which is massive. Um, but not what's happened. But not what's happened. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, the Conservatives took on a little bit uh, in Scotland. Um, uh, but in the main, it looks like, yeah, most of their votes have probably come from UKIP, but also have come from the larger turnout over 2015. Um, where uh, they've added, there's there's an extra one and a half million people that came out that didn't vote in 2015. Right. So there is so there is a larger turnout this time round. They have gained votes that perhaps weren't there before. Yes, they have, and there've been more registrations as well. So uh, there's uh, 365,000 uh, new registrations uh, around that. I don't have the exact figures for it, but um, around that have registered since the election in, uh, so rather, sorry, since the EU referendum. Um, so uh, the electorate has grown bigger by that amount. So you've definitely got some people that haven't voted before who have looked like they want to, who have gone out and registered and wanted to do that. Um, and, yeah, the numbers don't work unless you count in extra new voters. Right, so but then has this has this uh, election been affected at all by voter apathy, as as they call it? Then, or have we just seen a whole bunch of new voters come in and kind of knock all the percentages up and knock all the numbers up? Well, you talk about turnout, like they've talked about it being a, uh, an historic turnout of sixty eight point seven percent, which actually is one one and a half million less than uh, came out to vote in the referendum just last year, um, and is still. Uh, some way down uh, where um, from turnout what you'd expect it to be at. Um, like America, the turnout is abysmal. We know that. But in the UK, um, generally, it's been pretty high. Back in the days of, uh, so 1950, the vote in 1950, 83% um, turnout, eight, nearly 84%. Wow. Um, and uh, the turnout has slowly but surely steadily declined um, over the years. But it's still held roughly, you know, at least over 70%, um, until, that is, you get to uh, 1997. Um, and uh, that's when things start to go wrong in terms of turnout, uh, because uh, 3 million people decided not to turn out uh, from the election in 1992, uh, in the election of 1997, and then the following election in 2001, a further 5 million people decided not to bother turning out. So you lose 8 million people who just aren't coming out anymore. And the question there, you know, apathy. Yeah, it's always like the people always use the term apathy, which sort of suggests kind of like, oh, I could go and vote, but, you know, instead I'm just going to sit on my sofa and eat Pringles. And it kind of puts the, the weight on what's happening there on the electorate rather than questioning whether what's happening is you've got people who want to vote but have got 
no one that they feel comfortable representing them. And I think the way that the turnout goes, you kind of go, you know, Blair kind of captures this whole kind of like bunch of voters who are traditional left voters and then this sort of centre ground. And kind of pretty quickly, a lot of those genuinely left-wing voters kind of go, I can't really support this guy. Like, I voted for him once because I sort of was hoping that he was lying about the things he was going to do. But no, he's done all of those things. He's brought in PFI contracts. He's, you know, continued with all of the policies that I've spent my life voting against. I'm not going to vote. And is that apathy or is that actually a problem in our system? And I think similarly this time round, you know, we've still got, you know, it's a it's an improved turnout, but in sort of, you know, um, historic terms, still a very low turnout. And I think you can see that kind of at the kind of now almost a different process of people on the further edges of politics, kind of like those disenfranchised, previously disenfranchised voices, they're now getting excited and they're kind of like, yeah, we've got people that we that we can vote for. But it's now the middle ground, those centrist voters who are kind of like, ah, oh, I, I just, I, no, not her, not him, not any of them. The, the formerly enfranchised. Yeah, the formerly enfranchised. <laughs> Gonna go. Who do you vote for? It's gonna like Tim Farron. Oh no, he hates gays. I can't. But I, I'm staying at home. Forget this. I'm not. I'm not involved. Sure. So that's that leaves it in a very tricky place. If if previously sort of sort of centrist or middle ground, were, you know, were able to vote, and the other say fringe sides weren't, and now we've got it in the reverse. That that doesn't feel like there's any way of uh, getting everyone to vote at any point. I suppose it, uh, yeah, perhaps, but I mean, they we used to, and I think that a lot of it is actually about questioning what the centre ground is, and I think there are a lot of people who this time round, particularly are for sort of economic reasons, um, felt, I would say erroneously, that the Labour position is some kind of extreme communist kind of view, rather than actually kind of quite, you know, internationally, quite kind of middle ground, social democratic, kind of, you know, we can increase the economy generally, but also help people with that money rather than just let the rich get richer. And I think what we have is in this country is also historically the kind of the um, the centre ground has moved massively to the right. And there are now people, you know, it is now actually starting to go back the other way. I think the Overton window is starting to move to the left, which isn't to say that, you know, we're heading towards some kind of Marxist utopia. But um, actually, I think a large part of, instead of looking at it like, uh, oh, we're never going to be able to satisfy all people all at once, the interesting thing is that it feels like if you give people a choice, then they're more likely to express their opinion about it. Yeah. So uh, in terms of turnout, the turnout for um, leaving the EU was the biggest turnout since, uh, gosh, 1983. Um, in terms of percentage of people coming out to vote. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it rose massively, uh, the turnout for Leave the EU, and it's gone down a bit uh, from that to this election, but it's still higher than 2015. And it's been rising steadily since 2001, which is the nadir for it, where the percentage went down below 60% in terms of uh, people coming out to vote. And um, I think a thing that you can see is that when uh, your leading party is essentially taking on the same clothes as the previous party, because they don't think that they will be elected any other way, then the phrase, uh, they're all, they're the, all same. the same, becomes entirely true, you know, and you're kind of like, well, yeah, obviously people are going to say that. And you can see how 8 million people can go missing because, well, who do you vote for? And then you give them a choice. And now, yeah, the the, um, the turnout is increasing. And so would you say then, in which case for the kind of the next round, is it more important that uh, parties kind of enthuse people to vote for them or is it more important that they put people off voting for the other parties because uh, you know what what's made a bigger difference the kind of people that haven't bothered to say vote for the Conservatives or the people that have bothered to vote for Labour uh, I think uh, it's interesting in the sense of it always feels like you've got three sets of reasons to vote yeah you've got the I want things to stay the same so there are the people that are voting for Theresa May because you know let's carry on in the path that we're going uh, and then you've got the not them vote, which uh, 
I don't know exactly how that will split out, but definitely you're looking at it going, I'm sure the Conservatives have added votes because they don't, you know, they don't want Jeremy Corbyn to get in. And likewise... Yeah, Labour, certainly, in terms of kind of looking at the way that votes moved from Lib Dems and particularly the Greens, the Greens in some seats stood aside so that Labour could have a clear run, specifically because of the, you know, sort of this sort of progressive alliance campaign and people going, look, anything but the Tories, you know, it's kind of like just just not them. But then you've also got the people that want a change. So uh, it's not necessarily that that's the negative vote because, uh, you know, not them is, is kind of like, OK, that's the negative. That's going, look, you don't want to vote for those guys. But there is the, yeah, let's have a change. And that can be a positive thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, a lot of the time, the looking at the change in votes in terms of total number of votes, you start to see that a lot of the time it's about a change is when you get a lot of people voting in a new different direction. Um, so, for instance, um, up the top there, if you're just looking at Labour and Conservative, you go Clement Attlee in 1945, they want to change. Jeremy Corbyn, 2017, looks like people want to change. Uh, below that, Margaret Thatcher in 1979, they want to change. Um, and uh, then it gets a little bit more muddy. You've got Winston Churchill, 1951, going back towards him. Theresa May is the next one down there. But then you're going Cameron in 2010, uh, he got two million extra votes in 2010. And, uh, you know, you're getting a swing of, oh, actually, maybe we do want something different. Just below him, Tony Blair in 1997. We want something different. Mm. <clears throat> so a lot of the time, if you're appealing to the change, you can get uh, a lot coming towards you. Yeah. And it's even more prevalent when you look at the smaller parties where um, for ages, you know, I was looking at it just Labour and Conservative. And uh, you're thinking that Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, he's the second biggest change in votes uh, ever, but actually he's beaten by another Jeremy. Uh, maybe Jeremy's are just really popular. <laughs> uh, but Jeremy Thorpe in uh, 1974 for the Liberal Party, he put on 3.94 million votes, which is above Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and that resulted in a hung parliament in 1974. Uh, and uh, you look further down, you've got Nigel Farage got nearly 3 million votes in 2015, added to the total they'd ever managed before for UKIP. So a lot of the time you've got people that want to change, want something different to the way things are going. And uh, yeah, that's a substantial vote. But the question is now, having had that election just recently, are you going to have any more people that want a change? Or yeah, what are you actually looking at? And what does and also particularly now when we're entering into this, we've just had this massive referendum where the vote has been for a massive change. And so now that concept of what you're voting for change or stay the same gets really really muddy because you kind of go like traditionally you'd go i, I want, want i want it to stay the same so that we change right yeah uh, no what no 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 i want it to change so that... <laughs> yeah like normally you'd go i want to stay the same so i vote conservative but if i vote conservative then we're going to have a hard brexit and that's going to be a massive change i don't want a massive change so i'm going to vote for labor because no he's going to have a massive it's it, it's yeah you can see why people got confused yeah but it, a lot of this is going to come down to when that election comes about because if it's coming about sooner rather than later it basically means that the conservatives aren't able to run the country in the way that they would like um, and so they're going to have to go back to the polls for one reason or another um, and uh, the last time that happened was in 1974 when um, Edward Heath for the conservatives got more votes than um, Harold Wilson for Labour but um, he uh, couldn't form a government, and so Wilson formed a minority government uh, and then came back to the electorate in October of the same year um, to get a slim majority. And we might be in the same sort of situation. And it's interesting looking at the change in votes at that time because both of them lost votes in the next election out, as did Jeremy Thorpe of the Liberals. Um, but the big difference was that Harold Wilson lost by far the least amount of votes. Um, so Edward Heath lost one and a half million votes between those two elections. And so that's why he lost his majority. And um, and why Harold Wilson got his majority, rather, sorry. But, uh, yeah, that might well be the case this time round. If uh, if they can get an election coming round sooner rather than later, it might well be that you're looking at a reduction in the turnout because people are starting to... Get sick of going and having elections. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's also a big part of it. Is it just, oh, not another one? That's <laughs> going to put people off, uh, definitely. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before we get back to Grenfell details, I just wanted to give a small tribute to the former Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron, who resigned last week after the Lib Dems Home Affairs spokesperson Brian Paddock also quit, citing his concerns about Farron's views on gay sex being a sin. You might remember that during the election campaign, Tim Farron dodged a number of questions on whether or not he thought the practice of gay sex was a sin. Instead, he said, we're all sinners, which is either him being hugely homophobic, the weirdest way of him coming out in public ever, or he all thinks we originate from the village of sin in Iran. Either way, Tim Farron later stated that he didn't think the practice of gay sex was a sin, although that could have been perhaps because he just couldn't understand why anyone would practice it rather than just get on with fucking. But still, he stood down stating that he couldn't be Lib Dem leader and a committed Christian, you know, like Baal or Slater. Perhaps Tim Farron just meant that in his religion, Jesus only died and came back once. But as a Lib Dem leader, his party is really pushing how many times it can do that. Anyway, as a tribute to the tiny, tiny faced Tim Farron, who I almost forget once I stop saying his name. So Tim Farron, that's it, Tim Farron. I just wanted to do a special highlights of his time as Lib Dem leader section. So here you go. Hi, hi, Do you remember he made that? He made that really good gag about how people should watch Bake Off because Theresa May hadn't turned up to the election debate. Do you remember that it was like a Bake Off gag, something, something like that? And that's it. Good luck out there, Tim. Uh, maybe he'll try and get himself arrested and imprisoned in order to make it easier to be a committed Christian. Right, back to Grenfell. The Fire Brigade are proper heroes. I mean, it's undisputed as far as I'm concerned. They fight fires. You know what they say, you got to fight fires with firefighters. Well, they don't say that because they're idiots and they say you got to fight fires with fires, but any firefighters will tell you that's completely wrong. But anyway, huge respect from me for firefighters. I genuinely think they're incredible people who put their lives on the line to save other people's. And I don't know how you go about fighting a fire. At best, I've occasionally fought with a button on an old pair of jeans. It's really not the same. Last week, during the Grenfell tragedy, over 200 firefighters helped put out the blaze over 24 hours. With reports of tenants leaping from their floors or waving from windows as they're engulfed in flames, who knows what those firefighters have witnessed and gone through and how long it's going to emotionally scar them for. Fire service budgets have been slashed by nearly a million pounds in the last seven years. That means less fire prevention inspections, 10,000 fewer firefighters, several fire engines being taken off service and many fire stations closed down. Foreign Secretary and bag of giblets attached to a feather duster, Boris Johnson, closed down 10 fire stations in London alone when he was Mayor of London in 2014. Because yeah, somehow London voted for that twat twice. I take no responsibility. Fucking twice. Johnson's excuse for shutting down these fire stations was that there wasn't as much fire anymore, which is very dangerous thinking for someone with such dry straw-like hair. 
Also, there is a reason, Boris, that there wasn't as much fire as before. It was because a fully staffed fire brigade were able to prevent more fires with fire safety inspections. It's like cutting doctors because there's not as many deaths as before and... Oh, wait. They are doing that, aren't they? OK, OK. It's like cutting police because there's not as much crime. Oh, oh this is... This is pointless. Bojo also cut the amount of counsellors trained to help firefighters deal with trauma, and he cut them from 14 to just two. That's it. Just two. So there's so little support for the people who save lives. Of course, of course Boris wouldn't understand. I can't imagine anyone would let him talk at them for an hour without him throttling them. So where are we now? Uh, well, firstly, it's the welfare of the residents who survived that is most important. Red Cross and voluntary groups are on the ground, but they shouldn't have to be if the local council weren't so massively shit. Also, not all the food or money that's been donated have got to those in need, as people have already been rehoused and it's quite hard to find them. Uh, sometimes people have been rehoused against their will. Uh, BBC reported one man who lost his wife and was relocated to a hotel, and then he was moved out of that hotel despite protests to an old people's home. Cash handouts of £500 are being given to residents and families are going to receive £5,000 payments, which with London prices is basically saying get yourself a consolidatory frappuccino and have a farmer's market organic fuck you to go with that. There are also claims of people being rehoused outside the borough with just £10 a day to live on and the government have pledged a £5 million support fund but with £5,000 to each of the families barely touches that £5 million, and there's no indication on what the rest is going to be spent on yet but all in all it really feels like those most in need are those most being neglected. There will also be an inquiry, though many are demanding an inquest instead, especially as the current government haven't really got a great history with inquiries. The child sex abuse inquiry still hasn't got anywhere and is ignoring the opinions of all the survivors it's meant to be listening to, so that's not what anyone wants for this inquiry. An inquest is an independent investigation. An inquiry is a judge-led one with the judge appointed by the government. Inquests are fairly focused, while inquiries can be much broader. And there's lots of arguments about which one the Grenfell instance should have, and it's kind of a tricky question for me, mainly because I haven't got a clue. But an inquiry would be able to take in the full scale of issues that led to this, from fire safety to council neglect, and then it would be able to apportion blame, whereas an inquest would not. The two aren't exclusive though, and a correctly directed inquiry could then lead to an inquest. You say inquiry, I say inquest, let's call at least one of them and really quickly but with due care and consideration. It's not quite that good a tune. But before there's an inquiry or an inquest, the police have to conduct an investigation into any possible criminal responsibility, so that has to happen first. There are ways that you can help if you want to. Uh, the British Red Cross are volunteering on the ground, so you can donate directly to them. Just Giving have a Grenfell Firefighters page where you can donate to them as well. And if you go to grenfellsupport.wordpress.com, you can find out what items people still need. It's all very horribly upsetting, but if there is any silver lining to this very, very grey dark cloud, it's firstly how amazing people have been rushing to the aid, how many people have volunteered their time, uh, their money, their food, their clothes uh, in order to help. Um, it's also that many of the inadequacies of not only the government, but the very idea of neoliberalism, choosing profit over health and safety of people, all of that has been brought to light. It's just so sad that so many lights of innocent residents had to go out first for it to happen. Now back to Ben and Chris. And, and aside from um, well, being called Jeremy, which I think uh, Jeremy Hunt disproves your theory, but aside from being <laughs> called Jeremy, um, like what's, uh, you know, you, you've done some incredible, I, I think your number crunching on your article you did on Medium was, was brilliant, but um, who throughout history then has been the most popular? Who's, who's had the most votes ever? So, so the most votes ever, you've obviously got, um, for referendums, generally you're going to get a bigger result because there's only two choices. So at the very top, you do have leave the EU in 2016 as being the biggest vote ever, and that was 17.4 million. Um, just behind that, you've got the referendum in 1975, uh, where 17.37 million people voted to stay in the EEC, as it was then, um, which is obviously uh, like 40,000 less than um, voted 40 years later. Uh, so, But of course, 40 years later, there was a massive increase in the number of people who could vote yeah so the fairest way of assessing kind of like what's been you know what has been most popular across the whole country is to do it in terms of percentage of turnout yeah and so percentage of all of those people that are eligible to vote who are registered to vote how many people have voted for a thing and the top of that is um to stay in the eec in 1975 when nearly 20 if you uh 
put made the electorate the same size as 2016 um, uh, for the Leave the EU referendum, um, uh, then uh, the number of people that would have voted for staying in the EEC, rather than being nearly 17.4 million, would be nearly 20 million uh, right. would have voted back then. But in terms of um, politicians and parties, uh, in terms of uh, just total number of votes, um, the uh, the person who is the most successful politician of all time uh, is John Major, who got wow. over a million votes in 1992. Uh, I don't think anyone would have guessed that remotely. No, even John Major. If John Major is listening to this, he's currently slightly scratching his head and grinning to himself. He's, yeah. he's a weekly listener. I'm sure you know that. He's a subscriber, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, just below him, you've got Attlee, then Thatcher, then Macmillan, Thatcher again, and then Theresa May, who's above Tony Blair. But that's in terms of total number of votes. Um, and obviously, like we're saying, the electorate grows in size as we uh, grow as a country in terms of the number of people that are here, because we keep having babies. Um, and uh, and also not dying. Um, but, uh, yeah. Selfish when you look people. At, uh, selfish, selfish people. Selfish people. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, when you look at um, the size of the electorate uh, and you're going, OK, so in terms of uh, vote share, uh, the person who got the very most uh, um, people coming out to vote for them in comparison to how many people possibly could come out to vote for them was Clement Attlee in 1951, uh, when he got 40.29% of the entire electorate to come out and vote for him and Labour. Um, and they actually lost that year. To uh, to Winston Churchill. Oh wow, wow! So that much get that that much uh, that that many votes, and you can still lose. Yeah, yeah absolutely. that's the joy of first past the post. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it, but I mean, one thing to to point out in terms of when you're looking at the percentage of the, the electorate, um, one of the one of the things, along with um, like one side going 17 million votes. You know, no one's voted more. And you're like, well, there's not been more people than this at this point. Uh, you've got that side of it. But then the other side, the counter argument is, well, but it's only 37 percent of the country have voted for it. And you go, well, that's actually a really good result because, you know, back in the days. Um, so stay in the EEC in 1975, they got nearly 43 percent. And that is by far and away the highest result ever. Um, and the uh, in terms of winning. The, the lowest amount anybody has won since the world since World War Two, uh, in terms of share of the electorate, is Tony Blair in 2005, when he got 21.59 percent of the entire electorate. So you're going one in five people voted for him, uh, and he's our prime minister. Yeah, which brings me back actually again to the apathy thing, because when discussing election wins, uh, obviously politicians always talk about uh, percentage of votes cast, and they never talk about percentage of the electorate and so you know even then it wasn't a great result for Labour but he was able to point to kind of you know it was nearly sort of 30 40 percent of the votes cast had gone to him but it's only when you go no no in terms of everyone who could have voted you're down in the 20 percent of the population who actually voted for you and you just go like if 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 you wanted to really do it fairly you would make uh you would have empty seats in parliament that had to be left open because no one voted for anybody in that seat you'd have these gaps that would just sit there glaring at you being kind of like what are you doing wrong that is making people not bother to vote for any of you so if, if, you, if you did that, then the largest party in this parliament in 2017 would be the I haven't voted for anyone party uh, with 14.67 uh, million votes, uh, more than the Conservatives or Labour. Um, and uh, yeah, they would have they would have a majority. I think they might even no, they wouldn't be able to have uh, to just rule. No, they wouldn't be able to just rule, but they would. They would. Yeah, they, they would have a majority, though, in a way. Uh, if you look at the result we got, the I didn't vote for anybody is roughly what's happened. I mean, it's, you know, we're about as coherent as that with uh, the actual result of kind of like maybe a minority, but maybe not. We're not sure yet. The ink isn't dry. Sure. Do, do you find that sort of looking at results in this way, because it definitely, just from the information you give me, it, it changes a lot of uh, political narratives in my mind. For a start, that John Major was a lot more popular than I thought, <laughs> um, you know, but also um, at points where I think we're told that uh, a certain representative party has done better than another one. And actually, you look at it this way and find that things are a bit more evened out. Has it changed the way that you look at things? Yeah, it really does. I mean, we uh, yeah, I really like looking at the actual number of people rather than 
at those, you know, swings and uh, roundabouts of, you know, the uh, electoral way that people normally talk about it, because it is, you're going, you're not talking about the same thing each time. Whereas when you talk about, you know, just even like one constituency, like the average size of a constituency now is about 72,000 people. Um, and you think 72,000 people is a lot of people, but it's not 65 million and it starts getting a little bit easier to cope with understanding that number of people and then when you realize that to get a majority in most of those constituencies you're looking at like uh 20,000 a bit over 20,000 and you're probably going to be elected as the MP and then suddenly you're like well 20,000 people isn't that many people and then you get down to how many people extra do you need to actually get uh that time out so, for instance, uh, Boris Johnson has just uh, halved his majority. Um, uh, so he's only got 5,000 people now uh, extra who have voted for him than have voted for any other party, um, uh, which is Labour in second place. So Labour should be chasing after those 5,000 votes. And it, that's how they do it on the ground. Yeah, and um, also definitely in Aberrudd's constituency, there are, there's, what's that, 300 and something people? 346. 346 people is the difference between us having Aberrudd and us not having Aberrudd. Rod. I mean, that, that's tiny, isn't it? You know, that's that's fascinating. You you really think like any one of us could individually go and talk to 346 people and say, "Are you sure about Amber Rudd?" Like, re, like you could, it would take you a month, maybe. Like if you did it at weekends. Yeah, but John made an interesting one to bring up in terms of there you go, the most popular by votes uh, of all time. Uh, in 1992, it, it reminds me very much of the election we've just had, where you've ha you've got a, uh, a Labour leader who gets completely vilified by the press, um, mocked and also vilified. Um, and so the vote for John Major goes up. And you wonder if actually a lot of that is to make sure that Neil Kinnock doesn't get in, because, you know, if that happens, then everyone will leave the country and can the last one turn out the lights, I think was the sun. It was indeed, yeah. Uh, front page. Um, and this time out, here you go, the press have vilified and mocked Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May's vote has gone up. Um, in exactly the same way. And the lesson back in 1992 that Labour took was, oh, we need to be more like the Conservatives, um, because otherwise we're never going to get into power. When actually what happened was everybody got sick of the Conservatives and they lost three million votes. Um, sorry, no, they lost five million votes. So the, the biggest loser in terms of changing votes of all time is John Major who, uh, having got the biggest result ever, in 1997, he lost 4.49 million votes. So you're going to have to be pretty shit against him to actually not win the election. Yeah, and again, just sorry, John. I know you're a regular... <laughs> And you were feeling quite pumped. I'm really sorry to burst that bubble, but yeah. You are the biggest loser as well. Um, wow, yeah, that is hard. That is hard for him. But major winner, major loser. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Second biggest uh, major loser of all time is Nick Clegg, who managed to lose uh, 4.42 million in 2015. Um, uh, so, yeah, they definitely did get a kick in the Liberal Democrats in 2015 for... Uh, joining up with the Conservatives. And then just below, uh, just above him is Paul Nuttall with 3.28 million, um, having lost from uh, just two years ago. But um, the point is, is that, yeah, you, you look at Labour and actually the, the positive thing at the moment is, oh, this looks like this is the right course we're going on. Let's keep on this course. Um, and let's not correct ourselves to a point where we are inhibiting what we could actually do because we're scared. Yeah. Uh, and you look at how, you know, scared you get and you go. So from 1997 to 2001, Tony Blair is almost neck and neck with Michael Foote in terms of losing uh, actual votes. So Michael Foote in 1983, uh, he lost three million votes, but he lost them because the party split. And so those three million votes went to a new party, um, whereas Tony Blair, he lost 2.79 million votes in 2001. Uh, from his high point in 1997. And then he lost a further 1.17 million in 2005. So actually, in terms of losers for Labour, Tony Blair is pretty high up there for people that are good at losing you votes. He was just lucky that he lost those votes to people not being bothered to, to come out and vote rather than handing them to a different party. So he didn't have to sit there opposite these empty seats going, ah, if only I could have convinced you guys to come and vote for me. He was just like, well, they didn't want to. Everyone loves me. I'm yeah. still gone. So 
politically, it always, to me at least, it always feels like the best thing to do is to be trying to appeal to as many people as possible so that everybody does feel represented, everybody does feel enfranchised. Um, and that might mean that you won't win the next election, but it will mean that those people are getting represented and are getting fought for. Uh, which for a long time it felt like nobody was. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, you know, the message from, you know, that Labour can draw from Jeremy Corbyn's campaign is that, you know, it was a campaign focused on finding those voters who had previously felt that the party didn't represent them anymore and encouraging them to come back out. And, you know, it's 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 easy to, to kind of see it as, the, you know, numbers moving from here to here and here and kind of, you know, but you kind of go, it feels very much like a lot of the votes that Jeremy Corbyn put on are people who have been sat on the sidelines before. Um, and that can only be good because, it, you know, I think having a diversity of opinion um, represented in the system is is can only be, you know, closer to the true spirit of democracy, whereas the idea that kind of like, well, you know, there's only one way to go forward and we're just arguing over the managerial details, that just doesn't seem like... It's always the weirdest thing, managerial politics. You go, <laughs> if I were actually voting in somebody to be a manager, I wouldn't vote any of you because you've got no managerial experience. <laughs> Surely we should be turning to Tesco's. I mean, I'm trying to think of who's actually doing well these days. But yeah, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, why aren't you turning to supermarket managers if you're actually trying to get somebody to run something right? I can see why the idea of, I mean, actually, they, they even propagated that idea of, uh, you know, that's where Quang goes and uh, let's uh, put things out just over there so that the public's yeah. still paying for it, but it's a private company doing it. Yeah, stop so, it being a political football. That was the, the wonderful phrase, wasn't it? Yeah, the political football. And uh, you're like, well, it's still a political decision because it affects people's lives. There's not You're not going to actually change that. All you've done is move the blame seemingly away from yourself, but actually what you've done is you've made yourself look powerless which, again, is another reason why perhaps less people are voting for you. Yeah, because if you start going, you know, I mean, again, it's with Brown in that sort of that big decision of, of deregulating the Bank of England and going, no, no, we're going to take politics out of running the economy. And you go, all you're really doing is sending a tacit signal to us that you guys can't be trusted. And, like, that's a really bad thing for encouraging anyone to vote because you're just going, yeah, if you anything you give us to do, we're going to squabble over you're like, right, so why why should I give you anything to do? And you just go, it's such a negative, it's such a negative approach to it, whereas what you should be doing is going, no, look, you know, yes, we believe in things, but, you know, we we can make things better and we are doing something, and if you let us run things, we will run them for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, and to be fair to Theresa May, I'm sure she didn't win many votes for uh, the dementia tax. Um <laughs> But she was actually trying to be vaguely honest about some of the problems that were coming and how they would get paid for. I mean, generally, by going, the way they'll get paid for is by that I will take away all children's meals. <laughs> Doesn't seem like much of a vote winner. But at least she was being honest in that way. And you kind of go, like, actually, both sides, there's been some horrible stuff said. But also, there are a lot of positives for both of them in the way that they tried to campaign in the, you know, one side's going, OK, look, here's, here's the harsh realities. This is actually true politics. And there's another one going, well, here's hard with the hard realities of there is a different way. You don't have to do it exactly the same. It's not just arguing over, you know, which way we put the pencil. There's actually a complete ideological change that we could have. So that way, you're going, actually, that's a, it's been, it's been a very positive election, despite all of the uh, mess and complexities. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really nice way to look at it. Sort of, you know, hey, points for effort at least. I think <laughs> <laughs> all round. That's lovely, brilliant. Big thanks to Ben and Chris for that. Hopefully that all makes a bit more sense rather than just hearing vote share and assuming some people let their partners do the cross in the box for them. Chris and Ben are, as I said before, filmmakers and Nina Forever, their film can be found on Amazon, iTunes or Vimeo. Uh, they can also be found on Twitter at Blaine Brothers, that's B-L-A-I-N-E Brothers. And Chris's article on all those numbers can be found on his Medium page with the title Big Games. As always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or something you'd like me to interview people about, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or do it as a massive chalk drawing in Dorset, perhaps as a speech bubble coming out of the naked man of Serna Abbas's face or arse, and I'll see it next time I fly over, which will probably be never. Email is definitely easiest. 
Yes, the PPB question of the week is back. PPB QTW. That's too much, isn't it? Uh, it's back. And this week I asked you what Tim Farron was going to do now that he's quit as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Nick Afia says he will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Rob Skeen says he will become the new leader of UKIP. How would that work? And why keep, I keep thinking that you'd add the Liberal UKIP to Lukip. Sounds very lukewarm, which I suppose is what they both are. Lukipped? Sounds a bit like you've fallen asleep on the toilet, which I guess would sum them up pretty well. Uh, James Ross says he will continue knocking on doors to ask if people have heard the good news. Paul Jenkins uh, says editor of Stonewall, although he'd probably just cut everything, wouldn't he? There wouldn't be much of a magazine left if it's all sinning. Um, Andy Zoidberg-Walker says, Supply teacher. Whenever I saw him, I always thought there was a history or geography class without a teacher. Uh, Uroboros Messiah says, Obscurity. Beck Hill Comedian says, He is going to host a talk show with Jimmy Fallon called Jim Timmy Farallalalan. <laughs> I really hope. That would be lovely. I just can't imagine that Farron would bring any charisma to that. Um, at John Edwards 7175 says, Keeping the pews clean at his favourite place of worship. At Chronicle Flask says, I heard he's replacing Alexander Armstrong as host of a popular daytime quiz show. Apparently he's perfect because he's totally pointless. Boom! At Margot J. Milne says, Surely has to be strictly... I mean, can you imagine that man dancing? Also, he said that the Lib Dems would not be going into a coalition with anyone, so how on earth would he get a dance partner? Uh, at Al underscore Vim says, I need a draft excluder. And at Minnie Mayer says, refresh a course on how not to fall off a bus. There will be a new question next week, so check on the Facebook page or the Twitter account on Sunday for what that is and send me your answers ASAP. And that is all for this week's show. I'm sorry it was a bit more of a sombre one than usual, but I thought I just it made me really miserable and I just wanted to get information out and kind of explain why it was happening partly selfishly for my own good as well uh, anyway I promise this show is going to be back to its usual sardonic self next week uh, well depending on what this week's news brings um, and if you haven't already given the show review on iTunes or Stitcher please do if you'd like to donate to the patreon.com uh, forward slash parpol bro site or the kofi ko hyphen fi.com uh, forward slash parpol bro site then please do and just generally spread the word about the show if you can big thanks as always to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother The Last Skeptic for all the tunes I'm going to be back in your lug holes next week where no doubt David Davis will have given a demonstration to the Brexit panel in an awful French accent while singing two world wars and one world cup throughout full Brexit, Queen's speech and have we even got a government yet update by then this week's show was brought to you by some seriously crunched numbers including the number and the number Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.